1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 20. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to, to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The hope of our charge is love that, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike the fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and slavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. A few weeks ago, I was, I was at the Pistol Club, as I, as I do on a Saturday, and, um, and I was measuring a bush that slides over a barrel, because this bush, I thought, okay, I think it might be a bit worn out. It's a bit sloppy, it's, it's moving around a bit. Now, I've got a really good set of Michitoyo calipers, Vernier digital calipers, at my shed, but I've also got a cheap set of calipers that live in my ute, and of course, they're the only ones I had with me, but, but I had no reason to not trust them, at least until that day. You see, I measured the outside of the barrel, and then I measured the inside of the bush that slips over the barrel, and the inside of the bush measured smaller than the barrel. 
which is an impossibility. It just can't happen. It can't slide over it if it's smaller. Um, and so I realised that, that the internal measuring part of my calipers were calibrated incorrectly. Uh, now, the problem is, when things we rely on and trust, when they're not calibrated right, there's a big problem with that. So when a laser level isn't calibrated correctly, the concrete slab might end up not level. Or when the speedo of your car isn't calibrated correctly, you might end up getting a speeding ticket. Or if it's wrong the other way, you might have a heap of traffic behind you. When the thermostat of your oven isn't calibrated correctly, you might end up burning the birthday cake or not cooking it at all. Uh, when, when the reloading scales aren't calibrated correctly, you end up with a hot load that's dangerous or a light load that's no good. When your clock isn't calibrated correctly, such as probably would have happened in many states in Australia, you know, like so when, when you move into or out of daylight savings, if your clock's not calibrated correctly, you, you arrive an hour early or an hour late. And uh, our farmers would know when your boom spray isn't calibrated correctly, you might spray your crop with something that ends up killing it because you put too much of it on. Or you run out before you finish spraying the paddock. So Paul is writing to, to a pastor, uh, Timothy. He's a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And pretty much what he's telling Timothy in this section of the letter is how leaders in the church, and particularly teachers in the church, need to be properly calibrated. Um, if we believe the wrong things, we teach the wrong things, and we do the wrong things. And, and it's not only about teachers in the church, it's about all Christians. All Christians need to be calibrated. And so how well are you and I calibrated as Christians? Now, when it comes to, to calibrating a measuring device of some kind, it has to be done according to a set standard. So I used to work at the Dolby Ag College and we had, we had a weighbridge there. Pretty important to have the weighbridge calibrated correctly because you're selling stuff based on the weights that are, that are on the weighbridge. And um, I think it was about every second year, this bloke would turn up to calibrate the weighbridge. So he'd pull up in his truck and the first thing he would do is he'd unchain his forklift and, and take his forklift off the truck. And then the next thing he'd do is he'd grab a broom and he'd sweep off the weighbridge and then with absolutely nothing on the weighbridge, he would check that it was reading zero. If it wasn't reading zero, he'd make some adjustments to the weighbridge so that it was reading zero. And then what he would do is with his forklift, he would lift registered weights off of his truck and place them onto the weighbridge. Some of them were 10 kilograms, some of them were 100 kilograms, some of them were a full tonne. But each of these weights was a known and tested and registered quantity. You could trust them, they were exactly right. And, um, and so each time he'd put another weight on the weighbridge, he would make the adjustments that he needed to do to make sure that it was reading correctly right through the, the range of measurements. Now, on a, small, on a smaller scale, this is a 50 gram weight. This weighs exactly 50 grams. It's, it's what I use to calibrate my reloading scales. And yeah, so it can be relied on, it can be trusted on. We know that it is correct. This one 
is also a standard measurement. This is a standard measurement of length. This is a, this one is 50 millimetres long. And what this is used for is for calibrating a micrometer. So a micrometer can measure very small measurements. And so with my micrometer, to test it, I have to put it over this and wind it in until it click, 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 and then read it. And if it's not exactly 50 millimetres, you make a minor adjustment on the micrometer to calibrate it to make sure that it's exactly right. So we calibrate against a known set standard. As we learned with the kids before, what's the known set standard for us as Christians? It's the scripture. It's the word of God. The teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles recorded in the scriptures. Now, I think most of us realise by now how often Jesus and the apostles would give warnings about falseness in the church because it just keeps coming up in the scriptures over and over and over again. And it seems that the early church, in the early church, that there was an epidemic or a pandemic of misleading teaching. And I'm using those terms because they're good terms to help us to understand this because we do understand about these things now. An epidemic is an infectious crisis. It becomes a pandemic when it crosses international borders and it becomes an international infectious crisis. And then after a while, it becomes endemic, which means it becomes an infection that we're just going to have to live with. It's just going to be bubbling away in our community like the cold or the flu or whatever. Now, to use that analogy for doctrine in the church, and by the way, the word doctrine, it simply means the teachings of the church, what we believe and what we teach. So when it comes to doctrine, in the scriptures, we're seeing epidemics of wrong doctrine being taught. False teaching is infectious. It spreads and it's destructive. And wrong understandings of the gospel is so infectious, it becomes a pandemic. It spreads from church to church. But in this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying that when it comes to wrong doctrine, we must never allow unhealthy teachings in the church to become endemic, where it's just allowed to continue to exist in the church and we just have to continue to manage the side effects of the unhealthy teaching rather than rooting out the infectious evil that unhealthy teaching is. And, and Paul's charge to Timothy had, had, along these lines, had begun years earlier. Years earlier, he'd urged Timothy to actually become a pastor of the church in Ephesus for this very reason. So that you may charge, that means command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then as we read on, we discover that any different doctrine, it's not only that it's different, like we sort of think, oh, yeah, differences are fine, but not when it comes to doctrine, not, well, not when it comes to what we believe, because if it's different to what the apostles taught, then it's not sound, it's not healthy, it's false, and it's destructive. So for me, as a preacher today and every day, my task is to teach God's word 
without introducing novelties to try and amuse you lot, and without introducing alternatives that are not the gospel merely because they interest me or, or because they fit my way of thinking. And Paul was telling Timothy, you must not let different doctrines be taught in the church because if it's different to what the apostles taught, it's not sound, it's not healthy. In Ephesus, there were unnamed certain persons who would devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. And we don't know exactly what myths he's talking about or exactly what genealogies he's talking about either. But we do know how they function. They promoted speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Right? Now, you understand that's two very different things. Speculations as opposed to, to the faith that, that comes to us that we are to be stewards of from God. Myths are untrue. They're fiction. They're things that are guessed at. They're things that are made up. And endless genealogies is looking back into historical family lines and, and especially Old Testament family lines. And when it comes to myths and speculations, there's plenty of these things around today. All one has to do is browse the, the shelves of the books that are available at your local Christian bookshop. And, and then the number of books on, on secret codes and secret prophecies and whatnot, and some of them are even written as novels, but then some folk will be devoted to such things and they read them and they believe them. And then they might say to you, oh, there's a fair bit of truth in this. You should read this too. But they are myths. They're speculations. Promoting speculations leads to all of the disasters that come with having an uncalibrated faith, an uncalibrated gospel an uncalibrated sense of morality. If it's different to God's word, or if it adds to God's word, or if it takes away from God's word, it's not truth. Now, this is something which, in our age at the moment, it's a strange thing, but, but many people would make the claim, truth is relative. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. That, that's just a nonsense. That's an uncalibrated logic. Truth is truth. And anything other than truth is falsehood. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the rock solid registered standard of truth, he said, I am the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And by this, the teacher must calibrate what he teaches. And by this, the listener must judge what he is being taught. Now, stewardship is a word that Paul uses in relation to doctrine, in relation to what we teach. Stewardship means that it's not ours. It belongs to God. We're, we're merely stewards. It, it's, not, it's, it's not ours to adapt. It's not ours to change. It's not ours to update or to modernise. The gospel that we preach today is God's gospel. 
And it's the same gospel that's been available for us to hear throughout the ages. It's the same age-old gospel that Timothy taught. It's the same age-old gospel that Paul taught. The truth of the word of God today is as sure as the day it was written. But when a church's teaching tends to be based on other sources, right? So, so whether their teaching is based on philosophy or psychology or some kind of prophecy or whether it's based on a person's own experience, well, I've experienced this, therefore it must be true and you should experience it too, or, or whether their source of teaching is the thinking of man in some kind of systematic theological position, or whether it's based on feelings, or whether it's what gives the most excitement and is the most popular, or whether it's the words of a celebrity Christian and, and they're so popular and they're so, so well known, it must be right, they carry, their words carry a lot of weight. When a church allows teaching based on sources other than the truth standard of the word of God, it's nothing other than uncalibrated speculation. It's a false measure. And when a person or a whole church shifts their focus to speculations or theories or novelties, that, that's a pretty telling sign to me that deep down there's a discontentment there. Deep down there's a discontentment with God. And this I cannot understand, to be, to be discontent with the one true God, to be discontent with, with the one true gospel. I think of the words of Paul in here, when, when he's reflecting on the gospel, the true gospel, and how this changed his life, he bursts out in praise in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? It, it, this is the praise that pours out in response to the gospel as the gospel is. Why? Why would anyone of a true faith ever feel a need to, to look for myths or to look for speculations to try and tweak the gospel a bit? Why would anyone have a deep down discontentment with God or with God's word that, that we would feel that we need to add to it in some way? This must not be. Charge those who dabble into speculations, command them, you cannot do this in the church. Now, last week, we, we touched on verse 5. Even though we weren't studying verse 5, we touched on it. And, and I said that we're probably going to, as we go through this series, we're probably going to keep coming back to verse 5 because it sets forth the aim, it sets forth the goal of, of what Paul is writing to Timothy here. The aim or the goal of our charge, he says, is love. And as we read this, this letter to Timothy, if we're not understanding it as coming from a position of love and aiming for a growth in love, then we haven't understood this letter to Timothy. And if I don't understand that rooting out falsehood to allow truth to flourish, if I don't understand that that's love, then I'm not seeing the way things, the, seeing things the way that God sees them, 
and I need to be recalibrated. He says this, he says that our love issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Pure heart. Jesus said something about a pure heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He said that in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Not only that, the most famous part of his Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We'd be pretty keen to be pure in heart, wouldn't we? Who, who wants to be pure in heart? Yeah? Cool. Well, you're in the right place. Um, what does it mean to become pure in heart? And how, how does this happen? Well, we know that we become pure in heart by the forgiveness of our sin, by the blood of Jesus on the cross. But there's more to it than that. Let's never lose the perspective of what it truly means to be born again. To be born again basically means we have to have a heart transplant. Now, because I'm not talking about that thing in your body that's going boom, 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 and squirting blood around your body. I'm talking about the very centre of our being. Our old heart, the old very centre of our being has to be taken away and God gives us a new one. See, to be born again, it isn't just a change of destination. So I once was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. To be born again is a complete rebirth of the person that we are. Where the, the centre of our being was once a heart of flesh, but, but now we're born of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit in our hearts gives us a pure heart, where we're thoroughly changed. It's where our desires become godly desires, because we're no longer craving the things of the flesh, we're now craving things of the Spirit, because the Spirit of God is alive and well in our heart. It's where our desires, are, they produce these things, called, we, we call it the fruit of the Spirit. You know the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, these things, they're not, the, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not like, Oh, I suppose I'd better do some of them so that I'm pleasing God. I guess I'd better love somebody today and better be more patient with that person today. That's not how the fruit of the Spirit works. The fruit of the Spirit get generated because this is, becomes the default position of our heart, the default attitude of our heart. And so love issues from a pure heart. We can try and love people, but it's only when our heart is pure and, and, and because God is living in our heart that we have this purity of heart. Secondly, it comes from a good conscience. Righto. Now, if you ask most people in the community, they'd say, yeah, yeah, I've got a good conscience. Yep, my conscience is clear. Um, and just about everyone in the community, let's say, let's say everyone. Everyone has a conscience of some sort. 
Unless you happen to be a psychopath or a sociopath or whatever, then you probably don't have a conscience. Um, but everyone has a conscience. That they have this innate feeling or this innate knowledge that I know what's right and what's wrong. And it's based on our conscience that most of us decide, I do need a saviour or I don't need a saviour, right? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good, thanks. Yep, my conscience is quite clear. Because usually when we think of having a good conscience, we're thinking of a clear conscience. But I want you to understand these are two very different things, right? A clear conscience is, yeah, I've acted well according to what I know is right and what's wrong. I'm good with myself. I sleep well at night. But that's not a good conscience. That's a clear conscience. One can have a clear conscience without having a good conscience. A person's conscience may be clear, but it's clear because, not because they've done good, but because their conscience is bad. Their conscience is in dire need of recalibrating it according to the set standard. Instead of according to my standard, my conscience needs to be recalibrated according to the st true standard of good. And of course, the true standard of good is God. The word of God. Now, when we get towards the end of, of 1 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 2, that there's going to be a warning for those who wander away from the truth. And at that point, he says that their consciences are seared. That means like they've been hit with a branding iron, right? Pshhh. Now, you know when, when you get a bad burn on your skin and it's seared, it's sort of all, it goes this horrible, ugly look and it's tight in places it shouldn't be tight and it's loose in places it shouldn't be loose and, and it's, it's awful. And that's what he's, the, the image that he's giving of a conscience. Um, their, their consciences are seared, their consciences are bad. They've been blistered and burned and they've lost their calibration. And so a good conscience isn't about feeling righteous, I've achieved my set standard. A good conscience is a conscience that has been recalibrated to the true standard of good, which of course is God. I've shifted from my evil standard, the standard of men, to the true standard of good, the standard of God. And thirdly, a sincere faith. Love issues from a sincere faith. Now, a sincere faith is the genuineness of the faith we profess. We truly believe it, and what we truly believe is the genuine Christian faith, right? So love, true love, issues from a pure heart because God is living in our hearts. It's from a good conscience because God has calibrated it and, and we actually understand the true standard of good and we're wanting to achieve the true standard of good and a sincere faith that what we believe actually is the genuine Christian faith. That is where true love issues from when we're in that position with God. And Paul tells Timothy that it's the lack of these that is the source of the problems in the Ephesian church. He says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Now, 
there's two key actions here, swerve and wander. A person swerves. This, this is an intentional thing when we swerve away from something. And, and it may begin with, with something that seems good. It might be a quest to have a greater knowledge. And so they swerve away from the plain, simple teachings of the apostles. And then once they've done this, they've deserted the standard. They've deserted the word of God that calibrates what we believe. And once the calibration is lost, there's nothing keeping us on track. We wander away. Now, if you've ever been bushwalking, um, if you leave the designated track, there's nothing there to guide you anymore and you end up wandering aimlessly. Now, we, this is an easy thing to understand when you're in the rainforest and, and there's sort of a bit of something, oh, I'm going to have to go around that, and you sort of go around that, and then you're just enveloped by the scrub and you have no idea and you can't see where you've got to go. I know one time, we, I thought we would have been right because we were out in the open um, up in the hills somewhere, and, but it was all very rocky and, and whatnot, and there was, I can't remember what the obstacle was, but on the set track it wasn't, I think we we're going to have to walk through slush. I thought, well, I can see there's a way around it over there. And so we departed from the track and sort of wandered over that way and then sort of, where's, where's the track gone? Was, thought, surely we'll find it out here in the open, but no, it was just so hard to see. We sort of had to backtrack and find our way again. And so once we swerve away, the, the, the guide is lost. And when a person's heart is of the flesh. And when a person's conscience is not calibrated to God's standard, and when the faith isn't the genuine Christian faith, it's like wandering in the scrub. And we wander off into things that are not important and into vain discussions. And you know what? I reckon most broken things I've seen in the church have been caused by wandering from the truth into vain discussions and making things important that are not important. In other words, what he's saying here is life without these virtues leads to reduced love and meaningless chatter. And it seems that what drove these false teachers in Ephesus was their own intellectual satisfaction. They craved to be seen as teachers of the law, but they didn't even understand what they were teaching. There's, there's a little hint here. When, when he says teachers of the law, this means it's primarily about the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's known as the book of the law. And so they presented themselves as we're experts of the law. And they were brimming with confidence and, and they would speak very confidently. So, well, this means this and that means that. And yes, we're Christians now and so we can apply this in this way and we can apply this in this way. But in reality, they had no idea. And we see this happening today. Often people venture into the, into the Old Testament and they have no idea how to use it properly. So, for example, most of the name it and claim it prosperity theology, it looks back to, to the promises that were made to Israel in the book of the law. 
about promises of blessing for them in the promised land, and then these self-proclaimed experts very confidently teach that we as Christians, we have to claim these promises for ourselves today. They have no idea how to use the book of the law, the Old Testament. Today, like then, certain persons lose their Christian bearings and wrongly use the Jewish law. And Paul says something astonishing here. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, that, that's not the astonishing bit, because we know this, don't we? we? We know that the word of God, all of it, including the Old Testament, is good if we use it the right way and understand it the right way. Here comes the astonishing bit. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Right? So the main purpose of the book of the law is to restrain people from doing evil. Even to use that example before of the teachings about the promised land, that the promised land itself was intended as a restraint from doing evil. In, in the Pentateuch, there's the, the book of the law, that there's blessings and there's curses. And the blessing was that if Israel were faithful to God and, and, and obeyed God then they, and continued to live in a godly way, then they could live in the promised land. But if not, if they were evil, they would be cursed and driven from the land. Right? The main purpose of the law is restraint from evil. And he says it's for people like this, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, and the profane. And it spills over into actions. Those who strike their parents, those who are murderers, for the sexually immoral. Now, to sexual immorality by biblical standards is any sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, he says those who practice homosexuality. By the way, that to be tempted of any sin isn't a sin. It's to practice any sin that is a sin. Um, and slavers, that's, or kidnappers is another way of saying that, liars and perjurers. And then he throws in a catch-all phrase, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, or, or whatever else conflicts with or opposed to healthy teaching. Right? So the Old Testament law provided a set standard for those whose calibration is faulty, right? So if I'm somebody who doesn't have a problem telling lies, I can tell lies and my conscience is clear, right? If, if I, I'm, I'm not that person, but if I was that person, that means I have a bad conscience and, and my conscience needs calibrating to God's standard, thus steps in the law and says, you shall not bear false testimony. In other words, you shall not tell a lie. Uh, if a person feels no, no remorse about having premarital sex or, or living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, that person has a bad conscience. It needs recalibrating to God's standard. If a person is engaged in a homosexual relationship and they feel that there's nothing wrong with that, that means that they have a bad conscience. 
their conscience might be calibrated to the standards of the world, but they're not, it's not calibrated to the true standard of good, which is God's standard. Thus steps in the book of the law and gives us the recalibration. Now, I told you about this about myself just, just a few months ago. God recalibrated my conscience to his set standard and I no longer speed. I, I used, my conscience never troubled me with speeding. Um, my wife did. I'd get a sore leg every time I sped. Um, but when, when I was reading the God's word and studying it and having to preach on, on a passage about being obedient to the authorities, I realised I'm breaking God's commandment here. And so I've had to be recalibrated, my conscience, and now I no longer speed. But let's not forget that we live under the law. We live under grace, right? Our conscience can be calibrated according to the law, but we don't live under the law. We live under grace. I was thinking about this, and this is the best analogy I could come up with. The difference between law and sound doctrine or healthy teachings is like the difference between having your stomach banded or stapled and eating healthy in the first place. Right? So the law stops you from doing what you want to be doing. Whereas healthy teaching, with a heart surrendered to God, recalibrates our very conscience through God's word so we want to be doing and our natural reaction is to do what is holy and, and, um, and good by God's standards. Now, you probably noticed today's message is pretty long. And the reason that the message is so long is I wanted to hold all of this together. I tried really hard to find a spot where I could split this sermon in two and preach it in two different Sundays. And it was made extra bad because we got Easter next Sunday, so it was going to have to be two weeks later to finish it. But I realised that if I split it at this point, we'd miss the grace. We'd miss the grace. And some of you would be going home and saying, well, that was all very legalistic. I want you to hear the grace. Paul is very aware of all of what he's just been teaching because he's lived it. He remembers that he was once what he calls the worst of sinners. He used to believe that he was doing wonderful things for God. Do you know what that included? Hunting down Christians, having them arrested, and overseeing their executions, right? This is Paul. And as he did that, he believed that he was serving God and doing God a service because he thought these, these Christians, they're just an abomination to what God really wants. And his conscience was clear, but his conscience was wrong. And he was sincere in what he was doing. He truly believed in God and he truly believed that he was sincerely doing what God wanted him to do. 
He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And he believed that his heart was pure. He was a Pharisee. That's what they did. They were set aside to be the pure ones, the holy ones. But his heart wasn't pure. It was a heart of flesh and not of the spirit. And Jesus appeared to him and God completely changed Paul. And if God can change a bloke like Paul, he can change you and he can change me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That was what Paul realised about himself. And some of you might say, no, hang on, Paul, I, I was the foremost. I was the worst sinner. And then somebody else might say, but I was the worst sinner. Yeah, that's the way we're supposed to see this. I realised that I was one of the worst of sinners. But Christ Jesus came into the world not to save people who are perfect, because there is no one perfect. He came to save sinners of whom I'm one of the worst. And Paul received mercy for this reason, so that we would know that we can receive mercy too. Paul wasn't always this great godly man. In the grace of God, he was saved and recalibrated. And we can be too. And so Paul is commanding Timothy to keep at it, to keep fighting the good fight. Wage the good warfare is a better way of saying it. Now remember, we talked about this last week, Ephesus is in the midst of a spiritual battle. And wherever calibration is wrong and unhealthy teachings are endemic in the church, a spiritual battle is on and it needs to be waged. How? Holding faith and a good conscience. Believing truth and being calibrated by God's standards. Now, in verse 20, there's a couple of un- unpronounceable names. Hermeneus, I think is how he say it, and Alexander, they're named. And Paul says that he's handed these blokes over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, that sounds like a strange statement to make. I think what that actually means is, is their sin was so great and they're so unrepentant and they wouldn't turn away from it that they're excommunicated from the church. He'd said, Hermeneus, you're not welcome here anymore. Alexander, you can't come here anymore. That seems pretty extreme. What was their crime? They rejected a good conscience. Their conscience was to their own standard and it wasn't calibrated to God's standard. And Paul says that by this, they made shipwreck their faith. Um, Now, we see shipwrecks on the coast occasionally. They're usually old steel hulks. They're slowly corroding away. But back in the day, when a timber ship would be wrecked in the surf up on the beach, just totally demolished, turned into matchsticks, they totally ruined their faith because their consciences were seared and they set their own standard rather than God's standard. And this is why warnings against different doctrines, unhealthy teachings, 
are so prominent and so common in the New Testament. And this is why Paul is telling Timothy, you must not let different doctrine be taught because it's wrong. It leads to a shipwrecked faith, a, a total ruination of faith. You know, I've, I've heard times when people have said, oh, said to, you know, there might be a young fellow there really going good in the Lord and, and um, think, well, I might go off to Bible college and become a pastor. And, and I've heard people say to them, oh, don't go off to Bible college. They'll ruin your faith. They'll ruin your faith. And you know what? Some Bible colleges probably will. They'll fill you up with so much rubbish and so much nonsense, it might ruin your faith. But when one is taught the true gospel and learns with a correct calibration, your faith will get strong. So for us, let's praise God for his mercy. Let's praise God for his grace. Let's praise God that that Jesus died to save the worst of sinners, even us, even you, even me. Let's be filled with the Holy Spirit to have this pure heart, to have a good conscience, to have a sincere faith, not something that's pretend. And in the words of Paul, to, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.